today's text. It's very short. It's from Matthew chapter 7. We're heading towards the end of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be transitioning to the book of Nehemiah next in just a, a few weeks. And this, I think, maybe is the shortest text that we've actually dealt with as, as Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14 on two roads, and one of these roads leads to life. Uh, and here's how that text reads. Uh, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is the word of God. Well, it's a pretty straightforward message, isn't it? You have these, this picture here of, of a couple of gates that represent choice that can be made in life. You can go this way or that way. It's kind of like behind door number one, behind door number two, but these are gates. One of them is very narrow, and if you go through it, although it is a narrow gate and the path itself is narrow, it's the only way that you can really experience life. And the other one is broad. There's, a, there's broad, it, because it's broad and because the road itself is, is pretty easily navigated, a lot of people go down that road. Unfortunately, its end is destruction. And Jesus, in a very evangelistic sermon, is basically saying, enter through the narrow gate. And you need to choose the road that leads to life. Now that theme is something that we see all throughout, not only the scriptures, but the world and humanity. And Steve is going to highlight some ways that it's been brought to bear, even in our own cultural context, just to set the stage a bit. Morning. Oops, sorry. So to make sure that you remember the one key word from this message that Mark's going to deliver, which is road, <laughs> we've put together a little road medley for you. And so this is a, a mini game. Uh, it's a little bit on the side of uh, what the main idea is this morning, but it's all about the road. The other, road, the other uh, word, Mark, that really strikes me is the word few. That word really hits me. So I'd like to know more about that, maybe when we get into the, the uh, post-discussion. But anyway, this is all about the roads. So, and there's a lot at stake here. So Bill and I are going to play these little song segments you guess the name of the tune. If you guess it right, you get a Skyline cheese coney. <laughs> Sweet, sweetening the pot. So let's see how many of these you can guess. But I'll give you a quick clue. The first one is the Beatles. The second one is uh, Elton John. The third one is John Denver. Then we have uh, Ray Charles. And then we have Willie Nelson. Let's see how well you can do it. Now, Mark and Jill, you're. <laughs> you just shout it out, you get it, and the skylight just comes. Remember this.
So see me afterwards and we'll organize our skyline trip. So what is the key word? Road. A road. A road. Thanks, Steve. So yeah, I mean, obviously, we, that's just theme songs from the past X number of years here in you know, Great Britain, the United States of America, too. And obviously, Jesus is speaking thousands of years ago, but talking about a road. And so we all have this, this road in front of us, and we're all in a search. And the question really is, which road are we going to take? Not, not only which road will we take, but which road will we continue on along the way? And Jesus' meaning is pretty clear. And I want this morning, though, to do something a little bit different, too, and reach back a bit to explore how one person was trying to determine which path really led to life. And there's some, somebody in, 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 and there are others as well, but particularly in the Bible, who had all of the resources to explore any road that, that he chose and to see what happens if I choose this road. And is there life at the end of it? And that person is Solomon, the son of David. And so I'm going to read actually from Ecclesiastes. And I don't have this uh, entire text up above, but if you do have a Bible in front of you and you flip back to the book of Ecclesiastes and, and try to find your way there, it may help to look at it. I'm going to read chapter 1 with this idea here of Jesus' words in mind. That there are two, there are two ways to go. There's, there's a broad pl- way that, that a lot of people take. It seems like it's going to lead to life, but it doesn't. It's destruction. This is what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than One can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Well, in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 
we see that these are the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So this teacher, also translated in some of your texts, preacher or leader of the assembly, claims to be the son of David, and he is king in Jerusalem. He was King David's son, and as you may recall, he had remarkable wisdom. Even those who maybe aren't as familiar with the, the Bible probably know the story of Solomon praying for wisdom, and when a lady, two ladies come with one child and claim that each, each of them claims, that's my child, his wise verdict is because they're competing about who the child is, says, well, saw the child in half and give half to each mom. And the real mom says, no, 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 that's not my child. Go ahead, give it to the other person because she cares more about the child. And so that's a, an example of, of his wisdom, knowledge rightly applied. And he was known quite a bit for this all around the world. And he had all kinds of knowledge. So this guy would kill it on Jeopardy. He'd be, you know, Jennings, forget about it. This guy would be amazing. He, he was tested by the Queen of Sheba who had hard questions for him. And he answered them all. In fact, we read in 1 Kings that when the Queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom Solomon and the, uh, had and, and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his, of his officials, plenty of conies around his table, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half, of, well, half was told me in wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be, how happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom, and how happy you must be. I'm assuming she said as well. You have found the path to life. You have everything that your heart could ever desire. Wisdom, wealth, access to pleasure. Kings goes on to describe not only his wealth and his wisdom, but he had access to lots of women. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Can you imagine Valentine's Day <laughs> for, for this guy? I don't know what that looks like. He had influence and intelligence and women and money. He had it all, sort of. Because Solomon decides he's going to engage in an experiment, and he has the means to do it. There's, there's, here's life, and there's these different ways to pursue it. What is life all about? And he says, I'm going to, I'm going to explore. I'm going to take my resources, and I'm going to pour them all into one thing. It's kind of like an Elon Musk type thing, too. And I'm going to pursue it, technology. And at the end, if I can get there, then surely that's the pathway to life. He tries that. In fact, look at verse 2, or chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. So not just kind of this pleasure that, that you would think of for him. It's like laughter, too. Entertainment. I mean, this is massive binging going on here. He can have any entertainment he wants. It doesn't matter what the subscription price is. He has access to it all. He undertakes great projects in verse 4. He amasses silver and gold down there in verse 8. Acquired men and women singers. It's a musical nonstop for him. I mean, he's got everything that he could possibly want. And his conclusion 
comes immediately in verse 2 of chapter 1, certainly he would have found the road to life. But what does he say it all is? Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Other translations read vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Can you, you know, it's March Madness. Can you imagine right now, are there any coaches going out there saying, meaningless, it's utterly foolish, we're going to lose. It's com completely pointless. Why are we even here? None of this stuff matters anyway. Just go home, boys. That's not very inspiring. And yet he says that's, that's what life means to him. What if you're a pastor at a wedding? You know, if I'm, I'm doing a wedding, I say, this whole thing is a sham. It's all meaningless. Why you guys are just wasting your breath? Just forget about it. Go home. No, nobody's, it doesn't matter anymore. Or even at a funeral. I haven't heard a pastor yet get up at a funeral and say, I'm going to offer some words of comfort to everybody. It's all worthless. <laughs> Completely meaningless. This whole thing, it's just, this, this guy's lucky. There's actually some, uh, an antinatalist who, if he's an ethics professor in Australia, have some of my students read an article where he argues it's better to have never been born. In fact, you're doing a disservice by bringing children into the world. No, he's serious. Because all you're doing is inviting suffering. He's living this out. It's meaningless. The word in Hebrew for meaningless or vanity is chebel. It suggests something that is fleeting, temporary. It's of no value. It's translated breath. Delusion, empty, fraud, futility, nothing, useless, worthless. It's a feel-good message so far, isn't it? <laughs> it's the main word used in the Old Testament for wind. It's a, it's a common word to refer to idols all throughout the Old Testament as well. All that we experience in life is just whew, like the breeze that passed by or my breath of air that just went out. It's gone. Things don't remain for long, and the preacher here is piling up phrase upon phrase, vanity of vanities, utterly meaningless. And what he's saying is all roads lead to destruction, and life is meaningless. But that's not where he stops, thankfully. He says it's meaningless unless, he says, God gives it meaning. I mean, he has all the resources to explore this, and at least in his conclusion, he says it is completely meaningless unless God gives it meaning and he, he he labors to get there throughout the context of the entire book but right here in, in in Ecclesiastes 1 he notes in verse 4 in contrast to the earth we're just here for a moment that is despairing if you're a thinker uh, how how limited your time is on on life it feels like a lot in the beginning and then you start looking back as the decades pass and you're like whoa this is all the time that I got left. It's not much. In verse 5, the sun rises and sets in its course over and over. But, but man doesn't. We're just here for a bit, and then we're gone. In verses 6 and 7, the wind and the rivers go on and on, but we disappear. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Genghis Khan, Caesar, Augustus, Augustine, Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Ferdinand Marcos. They're all gone, and yet we are warmed by the same sun they were. And someday the same will be said of us. They're gone. 
And that all leads, he says in verse 8, to weariness, a hopelessness that drives man to seek more and more. We're just never content. We're always pursuing something that's elusive. In verses 9 and 10, familiar phrases, there's nothing new to find. You know, love, hate, peace, war, passion, despair. You're not the first person to experience those things. Death, illness, sorrow, pain, joy, pleasure, elation, disappointment. It's been here forever. Man complained about the same things in Solomon's day that we do. The weather's too hot. Weather's too cold. Don't we have anything else to eat besides this? You know, I'm bored. I'm tired of the same old routine. My back hurts. My head hurts. I wish I were smarter. I wish I was like him. I wish I was like her. I wish I looked like him. I wish I looked like her. I wish I had that wife or that life. And one generation may accuse the next of not understanding, which is understandable. The ancients didn't have iPhones. Nobody did until 2007. But they still had distractions, and they still had divided allegiances. They still sought to take themselves away from the hard things of life. Moses and the golden calf, right? I mean, they've been given by God. He's revealed them, himself to them and, and delivered, and they forget very, very quickly because they have the same heart issues. Because it's not about the stuff, it's about what's inside. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, has been driving this home from the beginning. It's about your heart, people. It's about what's inside you. And that's where we need to get to. There's a lie in technology that it can bring satisfaction. It's what you need. But one cracked screen later, you see how fleeting it is, right? I mean, come on. It costs that much to repair? That's silly. And then to get a brand new one? But you have to have it, right? You can't live without it. Is there anything more reliable than that? More fixed, something that can give lasting meaning. We're on a search for meaning. And that's what he says in verses 12 through 18. In summary as well, we're on a search for meaning. He speaks of trying to find meaning apart from God and specifically here through academic pursuits. He tries to make sense of things through wisdom and education and knowledge and learning. But it's just still vanity. It's like a chasing of the wind. Has education solved man's brokenness? When, when there's a problem, do we just need to give more information? And that may be part of it. But is all the information in the world enough to fix what's broken? Can knowledge bring fulfillment and perfection and meaning? Can the fulfillment of our own pleasures, can we amassing more stuff? Can accomplishments? Take it from Jim Carrey if you don't want to take it from Solomon. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Wow. Everything you've ever dreamed of, that's the, if I just get that, then I will really have life. Jim Carrey says, I wish everybody had that. Because for him, he's gotten so much of what he wanted, and he's still empty. He sees it's vain, or it's just not enough, or something's still amiss. So the question is, will we seek to find meaning by creating our own world or by resting in the one God has made. 
and in our particular role in it? Are we going to find meaning in resting in the world God has made and in the role that he's given us in it? And Solomon is, is kicking the tires on this, trying to figure that out. If you skip to the last verses of the book, you'll see that this is where he finally ends up. After a lot of trying experimentation and trying to figure out what it's all about, he says, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's almost like Solomon is saying, enter the narrow gate. Fear God. Keep his commandments. There's something kind of narrow about that because what's being presumed is that you are not God. You do not define reality. You do not decide what right and wrong is, what good is, and what fulfillment is. God does. He's the creator. You are the created. You're here for a short period of time. Make the most of it. But at the end of the day, it's really about God working his purposes. And you get to participate. And that really gives life. But it's a narrow path. Because you're fearing God, not man, not what other people might say or do. And you're keeping his commandments, not the commandments that others have put in place. And that's kind of narrow. Because God, even from the beginning, has said, I have made you. Here are the boundaries which I have given for you to flourish, and we want to reject those. It happened right at the beginning with the Garden of Eden. <laughs> you know, it's like, here's everything I have except for this one tree, and we focus on the one thing you don't have? Isn't that kind of human nature, do you find? Let me count the ways we were singing. But it's easy to look at the ways we feel like God's disappointed us, or the ways that he's restricted something. And I tell my students again, I teach ninth graders who are starting to think about driving. Uh, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy illustration about what, what freedom is like. Because when you get your driver's license, if you can recall, there's all kinds of freedom. If you're coming from a different country and you don't have access to the roads, you want to get trained so that you can do it, you've got restrictions. There, you can only go where you can walk, but you get the keys and turn it, and you get to go wherever you want, as long as you obey the rules of the road. As soon as you start thinking the stop signs are just suggestions, and the speed limits don't really get the RPMs going the way I'd like to do it, then, you know, you, you can get away with a lot of stuff, but if you get caught, then you have to pay the consequence. And your license might be suspended or even taken away. Or you'll have to pay a fine. And especially if you're a teenager, parents will start saying, I don't think you're quite responsible enough for the keys yet. And then where are you? Friends aren't happy with you. You're not happy with your parents. You're not happy with yourself. You're not happy with society. Is that life? Because God has put, and even in that, structures in place, and that is how we flourish. Real life comes from, from submitting to the order that God has put in place and recognizing and flourishing as God has given us life to do within that scope. It feels so restrictive sometimes, but that's actually the pathway to life. You obey the rule, rules of the road, and, you're, you know, over time, your parents are going to let you go a little farther. And, and you want to take that road trip to California when you graduate from high school? See you later. But you may not be making that trip 
if you haven't been responsible with it. And that's just a way of looking at something similar when Jesus says there's a narrow gate. What is the narrow path? He's been talking about it all the way through Matthew in chapter 5 and 6 and leading up to 7. Love your enemies. Do you know how hard that is to love somebody who hates you? I mean, I've given plenty of driving illustrations before. What about somebody just cuts you off in traffic? Is your immediate response, I love that person. You know, I'm going to show love to that person by praying and giving grace. Or is it anger and hostility? Well, Jesus said, yeah, it probably is because your heart is the problem. And you are quick to judge that person because you've forgotten how much I've forgiven you of. How many times have you been the one who's guilty of that? Wouldn't you expect that person to be gracious and understanding that you were just thinking about who the latest draft pick for the Denver Broncos was and you weren't paying attention? Certainly they'd understand. Or something far more difficult, like you're worried about the health of a child and your mind is in a completely different place. Don't you want grace extended to you? Jesus says that is a narrow road. But that is the way to life. 2 Corinthians 7.10 is a fascinating verse to me. And Paul talks about godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, right? If you know you've done something wrong, you feel the weight of it, and you repent, you say, I'm sorry. But repentance, theologically, isn't complete until you've received forgiveness. Part of repentance, you don't just uh, run right to forgiveness. You have to be contrite. You have to feel the weight of that, but then you feel the, the lifting of the burden when you know that God in Christ has forgiven you. And that leads to life. God, godly sorrow is not, I feel terrible for what I've done, and I will spend the rest of my life beating myself up over my failure. That's worldly sorrow. You know what that leads to? Death and destruction. That's what Paul says. Worldly sorrow leads to death, leads to destruction. You can take that path, and you can be a believer saying, okay, I've entered the narrow gate, which we'll see is Christ himself. I'm walking on this path, and still walking like somebody who's on that broader path, even in that arena. You are forgiven. If you're continuing to live in self-pity and self-loathing, you, are you really beyond the reach of God's love? Are you the one person who had the giant asterisk when Jesus said, forgive them, except for you? Because you're so much worse than everybody else? That's, that's a path to destruction, brother and sister. So that's why I say it's not just entering it, it's continuing to walk along it. Not simply in being a morally good person, but in applying the gospel, even when you've made a mistake. And being set free from the, the constant sense that I have to do more. No, you don't. That is a path to destruction. And there are lots of people sitting in pews that are head, headed down that path. And Jesus is bringing us back and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right at the beginning, you realize you have no standing before God except for the person talking to you and Jesus offering a sacrifice. That's poverty of spirit. You have no riches on your own accord. And he says, walk in this path. And it can be hard. It can be difficult. In fact, he says, it's impossible. You want to be righteous? Don't look lustily at, at a woman because you're committing adultery. Wow, that standard's impossible, Jesus. Yeah, it is. I took care of that, and now I'm going to drill it down deep in your heart to get to the motive and the intent, not just the physical actions outside. 
There's a lot of people who are walking on that road that seems narrow, but they're just self-righteous hypocrites. That's who he's talking to here too. And Solomon, way back in the day, was, was struggling with the very same thing. The journey, he would say, is pointing to something and someone greater. It's pointing toward God. And it's also understanding all of the things that Solomon had, money, pleasure, work, learning, not as goals, not as ends in and of themselves, but as things to be stewarded and enjoyed in the right time and in the right way. You know, there's a time for everything. Six times you read in Ecclesiastes, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. So that's it. I mean, he's saying you want life to have meaning. It's within the scope of a God who's given you this world and something to do in it. That's from the hand of God. God has given us something to do. We can find meaning in the tasks we perform and the food we eat. Whether it's Skyline or Gold Star or Kale or Tofu. Whatever the case it may be. But he suggests only if we see them rightly as gifts from God to be stewarded. A lot of you may know Cornelius Van Til, a presuppositional apologist, apologist who used to talk about an apple. and say, you know, we can eat an apple. If you're a believer, you eat an apple. If you're a non-believer, you eat an apple. And you can both take a bite of it, and it's mm, juicy. Maybe it's a really refreshing Honeycrisp apple that is just perfect. Oh, it tastes amazing. But for the believer, only the believer knows that's a gift from God. There's a level of experience and appreciation. Only somebody who's taken this path can say, this is a good gift from God. Hallelujah. You can eat an apple and be immersed in all kinds of praise. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. There is a difference there. And Solomon is wrestling with this to understand seeing everything as, as the eye of God's good gifts. Apart from that, it's strictly utilitarian. And it will be gone just like everything else. You eat the apple, you digest it, it's gone. But the joy and the blessing of receiving a good gift from God never disappears. We're not called to create our own utopia or our own paths and roads to life. Meaning is not found in our own definitions of good and bad. It's found in humble and joyful submission to the one who created us. And the only one who endures forever. He is the meaning giver. So Solomon would argue, as Jesus has been in the Sermon on the Mount, that without God, our desires are wrongly ordered and out of place. Money. Jesus talked about money not too long ago. He said, how do you think about it? Well, it's not that money in and of itself is bad, but your heart can be attached to money in such a way that it is your God. No. If I am the one who you're serving, and then you're going to use money for the purposes of the kingdom and store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't get to it. That is going to last forever. That's a massive ROI. It's much more predictable than cryptocurrency. You can't see it, measure it right now, but wouldn't it be amazing if you had an app? 
I mean, I don't know if this would be motivating to some to, ooh, treasures in heaven, mine are adding up right now. So I don't even know really what that means necessarily, but well, here it goes. I can't wait to get to heaven. I got a serious nest egg being built up there, a 401 spiritual K. Money isn't worthless, it has value and meaning, but if our meaning is defined by how much of it we have, our desire is wrongly ordered. And Jesus says you can't serve God in money, success in the workplace, enjoyment in life, degrees in education. The Bible as a whole suggests that genuine and lasting meaning in the journey of life can only come from knowing God. That's it. That is the road you are to take. And that's something that everybody wants, but it's a narrow gate. Because there's only one way you can get it. Jesus says, when he shows up, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way you can get to the Father except through me. That's kind of narrow. That's not a popular notion for some. A lot of people look at Jesus, think he's a great teacher. And he was. But when he makes claims like this, you cannot get to heaven except through me. When he says, I am the resurrection, Anastasia. Just like our beautiful Anastasia back here. Her name means resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody can, can experience that except through Jesus. So when he comes up and he starts teaching these people and he says, enter through the narrow gate, we'll read in John 10, I am the gate. I'm the door. I'm it. You really want life? It can only be had through me. That's a pretty narrow claim. But it's the road to life. That's what Jesus came to reinforce. He is the king in a kingdom, and he gives that kingdom meaning. So no matter what you do, you can do it for the king, and it has value. Money put in its right perspective, have it or don't have it, you can have joy. And Paul, Paul, Paul got this, right? He learned it over time, the secret of contentment, because he knew his joy came not from having a little bit or a lot, but from having Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die, that's just gain. That's Because he knew that laying his life down, losing his life was the only way he could really find it. Success or failure, doesn't matter. You can have joy. Pleasure or pain, you can have joy. Deep the deep assurance that God is at work no matter what. Deep meaning in life can only be known at the most profound level if you're placing your hope in something beyond this fleeting world and passing experience of life. Otherwise, it's just vanity. It's hevel. It's the wind. Changing diapers, because this is what the king has given you to do right now, it doesn't have to be meaningless. Chasing kids, working hard hours to provide for a family. It doesn't have to be meaningless. Studying hard, even for a subject that's not your favorite, because that is what the king has given you to do right now, no longer meaningless. Because God has given this for you to do. And that is a picture of the pathway to life. But you take God out of the equation, and what do you have left? Lots of answers, right? There's a broad road. You can explore all kinds of things. But in the end, its pathway is destruction. 
That's, that's Jesus' words, not mine. And if you take Jesus at his word then, he is saying to you today, are you on that path? And are you continuing on that path? And even when you look around and it seems dark, I am there with you. Because sometimes that path can take you through some dark places. A road that's narrow, it goes down to death. But he's there. He hasn't abandoned you. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You walk on a road through the valley of the shadow of death. Where's Jesus? He's with you. I am with you. No matter what you're facing. So even in the darkest moment of despair, there's that glimmer of hope because the one who himself died on your behalf is giving you life. He is with you. His very presence is real in the midst of that. If you don't have that, what have you got? Your own resolve and your own strength. And that runs out. I don't care who you are at some point. It just does. Or you shut down and filter everything out in a sort of unhealthy sort of way. Not working very well. This is the only way that leads to life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when Jesus says, look, enter through the narrow gate, you got this choice before you. This is the way to life. And it's hard but good. And the other thing is there's other people on the journey with us. There's a big broad road and tons of people out there. And there's this kind of smaller road. But there are still pilgrims on the way with us. You're, you're, you're on the road with me. If you're my brother and sister in Christ, thank goodness I'm not doing this alone. We're not designed to, to do that. I need you. I don't know if you need me. I need you. I, I, you, you are God's gift to me at this time in this place. And you might journey on. You might fly away somewhere else. That's, that's okay. You'll find other brothers and sisters. And one day we'll all be able to sit down. I don't have to say, hey, come hang out at the Redeemer house for a couple minutes because I miss you. I just want to sit and talk. We'll be sitting around wedding feast lamp forever. Not putting on calories, I guess. I don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to be awesome, though, because I'm not going to have this watch anymore telling me it is now time to wrap up and head home. Doesn't matter. Throw it away. That's the life that I have to look forward to. What are you looking forward to? It, that is assured to me by Christ, not just his words, but his life and his death and his resurrection. That sealed it. That's the guarantee that he forgives sins and that he's coming back to make everything right. And that you and I, if we've entered through that gate, which, by the way, comes through faith in Christ alone, well, then we're going to be experiencing this a little bit more. In fact, for eternity. And that's going to be awesome. That gives me hope, no matter what the day may bring. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Hallelujah. But I am on the path to life because I'm trusting the one who gives it. And Solomon says, come on in. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Jesus says, enter through this gate. Walk on this road. This is where you find life. Father, I pray for our own hearts today. Mine, too, for the reminder of how challenging this road can be at times. But it's more than just aligning to a certain set of moral standards. It certainly includes that. You say, this is what life looks like. It goes deeper than that. 
It goes to the, the very changing of the foundation of our understanding of who we are, what motivates us. What is the intent of our heart? How are you continuing to work in us? So let us not think of others and say, oh, they're off the journey on, on this road today, although perhaps it may move us to pray that you would woo them into this pathway, but ourselves too, and remind ourselves of the joy and the beauty of walking on this road and applying afresh the good news of Christ, who says, I am with you to the end. I forgive you. I am, I, you are mine and I am yours, that ringing promise from the book of Genesis 2. You are my people and I am your God. This is the path. This is the road that I have given to you who have trusted in me and it is the way of life. May we remember that and remind ourselves and each other of it today. Come Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen.